Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I'm increasingly convinced that the real difficulty that people have with the Christian life is that it's a life of faith. That is, it's a life lived beyond the realm of the five senses. We don't see our God. We don't hear Him speak audibly to us. We can't touch Him. That is, we walk by faith, not by sight, as 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says. And that's a challenge to many, many people. Because mankind naturally wants a God that he can see. That's why false religions are notorious for idolatry. The children of Israel came out of Egypt and they made what? A golden calf because they wanted a God they could see like no doubt the Egyptian culture they had just come out of. And perchance if someone knows that bowing before an actual statue is improper, people tend to at least want some kind of symbology. They want a crucifix or a religious relic or another icon that might put them in touch with God. It makes it easier for me, somebody says, to think of God, to get close to him if I can see a picture or I can have some kind of symbolism, whether it's a painting of the face of Jesus or a sculpture of an angel or some special ceremony that obviously has a deeper significance than is readily apparent. The great challenge to people in this world who want to live the Christian life is simply that it is a life of faith. And as a side note, I want to ask if you've ever noticed that in the memorial supper Jesus gave to his disciples the only real ceremony besides baptism that he gave to the church. Have you ever noticed that uh, he did not employ the use of a granite monument in that memorial supper? or a permanent work of art as his memorial, but the two items that he put on the communion table were consumable items, unleavened bread and fermented wine that you take into your body. You do taste it, it's a sensory perception, but yet it is not something that is lasting and permanent, a statue per se. It has to be remade for the next observance of that ceremony. And again, the reason for that is because the just shall live by faith, not by sight. That leads us this morning to our passage in Hebrews chapter 8. I want to read the first six verses as we speak on the main point of Hebrews. The main point of Hebrews. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example 
and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Notice this chapter begins with a summary statement. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. The word sum literally means the main point, the principal point. And it's a good thing that after seven chapters and 22 messages that we've tried to deliver on the book of Hebrews, we finally come to the main point this morning. You say, Brother Goins, what is the main point of this book? Here it is. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the main point. We have such a high priest. Now, I want to emphasize those two words, we have. And you'll notice that this expression is repeated over and again in the book of Hebrews. In fact, we'll try to put a little bit more emphasis on it when we come to chapter 10, when he says, having, we have access to the holiest of all and having a high priest. And when you talk about something you have, you're talking about something that is in present possession, correct? If you have something, it's yours. We have such a high priest. Now, I suggest it's important to understand the background behind what was happening to the Jewish Christians that were the recipients of this letter, because they were living in a culture, a society, which was still worshiping Jehovah at the temple. And can you imagine the pressure that was on some of these Christians to have left the temple, the established religion of the Jews for 1,500 years, and now they are no longer attending temple worship, but they are meeting in a, someone's house with a few other people, and they're going through a very simple order of worship. Can you imagine the pressure that they were under? I can just hear some Jewish employer telling his employee, I missed you at synagogue on the Sabbath, and the employee says, well, I'm attending church now on the first day of the week. And the employer would say, well, you don't have anything. Why are you going there? You have no temple, no cathedral, no sanctuary. You have no pomp and ceremony, no artifacts, no robes, nothing that reminds us of something holy. There is no fragrance of incense filling the room. There's no priest. You don't have anything. Why did you leave the established religion one with such a rich history over the past, again, 1,500 years, with its ornate temple and its incredible wealth and its elaborate rituals and its trained spiritual leaders for a few people meeting together in someone's house to simply sing a few songs, listen to an untrained person talk for an hour about a man that died a very shameful death and then eat a single piece of tasteless bread and a small sip of wine, you don't even have a priest. Why would you do such a thing? I can imagine that would be a very intimidating kind of pressure, can't you, from their community. The most challenging thing about living the Christian life is that it's a life of faith, not of sight. 
But, of course, people want a religion that is full of all of the trappings that they can see and hear and smell and touch to put them in touch with God. But Jesus says, the just shall live by faith. And by the way, this is a theme that will be developed even further as we move in the book of Hebrews. In fact, the entire 11th chapter of Hebrews is the faith chapter, teaching us that true worship and true discipleship is a matter of living by faith, that is, serving a God that we don't see with our eyes or hear with our ears or touch with our hands. And you say, well, you would think he would at least give us some pictures. And the answer to that is he has in this book. But you see, we have something better than any religion ever before us in human history. We have, my beloved, the reality. We have the genuine article, not simply the shadow. And the Jews... That's his argument in this passage. Worshiped, he says in verse 5, serving the example and shadow of heavenly things. But our high priest is in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So his argument in this passage is simply that our religion is better than your religion. You've all heard of little boys on the playground playing the old game, my dad can beat up your dad. And that's always a precarious thing because, um, you know, before you know it, the, your neighbor, your friend will become so incensed that he will prove that he can beat you up if uh, you insist that your dad's stronger than his. Well, we say that's uh, child's play. But may I say, dear friends, all religions are not created equal. Every religion is not equally valid. In fact, when Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, salvation is of the Jews, He's not making an ethnic comparison, but he's simply stating that all religions are not equally valid, that the Jewish religion is superior to the Samaritan religion. We do believe God is the author of the Jewish religion. God gave the law. He gave his revelation to Moses and the children of Israel. That law has fulfilled its purpose. The law has run its course. And the law has reached its zenith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And I would say this morning that every false religion borrows, it, it either repeats the law service to some degree, that is, it incorporates some of the sacrifices and ceremonies and rituals into its worship. We see that in the smoke, the holy smoke, and the incense, and the smells, and the ceremonies of the sacrifice, and so forth in many professing Christian religions. It either duplicates the law almost in its totality, or it borrows bits and pieces of legalism, that is, it implements the teaching of law service into its attempt to worship God in Christ, May I suggest for consideration that the law has run its course. Again, I emphasize the importance that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Romans 10.4, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is, the word end means its destination. The law has found its terminus, its destination. This train has reached the station, and Jesus Christ is the satisfaction for the law. For instance, let me illustrate it like this. Do you remember that while he kept the Passover feast with his disciples in fulfillment of Moses' law, 
he took the bread and the wine and then he passed it around and they all partook of the Passover. But then on the heels of that Jewish feast, Jesus implemented a new supper. He took the bread and the wine and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he says, drink ye all of it. For I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus Christ has kept the Passover meal. Then he's implemented a new supper because the order of worship is about to change from the Old Covenant to the New. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, when we think of our Bibles, I think it's helpful to think of our Bibles as a two-act play. We do believe in the unity of Scripture. We believe that the Bible's a book of one story. Many people prefer the Old Testament. Others prefer the New Testament. I'm saying today that both Testaments are important. And just as in a two-act play, both acts are essential to the entire story, that neither act stands on its own, and that each act has its own story, but yet it's crucial to the entire message, May I say that both Testaments in our Bible are important for us to understand the message of Scripture. What I mean by that is simply, dear friends, that if you only read the New Testament, then there's so much that you're going to read that you have no foundation for. You say, why is it talking about these animal sacrifices? And where did this principle of substitution, that an innocent must die in the place of the guilty to make atonement for sin, where did this come from? The Old Testament is crucial if we're going to understand the message of the New Testament. Likewise, if you just read the Old Testament, but you don't read the New, you're going to be left with questions such as, what does all of this mean? Why are they going through these sacrificial ceremonies of slaying an animal, taking a little lamb, and cutting it in pieces and offering it as an act of worship on the altar to God? What is the meaning of the shedding of blood? Somebody says, well, it has some meaning that we don't have the rest of the story for. And may I suggest for consideration, dear friends, that if we're going to understand the book of Hebrews, which is the most Old Testament of all New Testament books, it's important for us to grasp this principle that the Old Testament is preparatory and predictive and the New Testament is the revelation or the fulfillment of the old. Jesus Christ came, in other words, to be the Lamb of God that fulfilled all of the types and shadows of those little lambs that were offered on the altar of Jewish worship through the Old Testament. Jesus is the final, the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. And just as Aaron and the priests did their work, Jesus has come as the great high priest who once and forever makes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices so that we don't have to keep going to the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice and the Sabbath sacrifice and the high day sacrifice. You know, those Jews, they never finished sacrificing, did they? And that's because once they finished one day, the people sinned during the night and they had to come back the next morning and start all over again because their sacrifices could never take away sin. It was like some of the road construction I've seen 
in our part of the country. You know, they take out a big swath of highway and they start on this end and they tear up the old asphalt and then they lay down a new uh, road and uh, they get to the end of it and then they have to go back to the beginning and start all over because by the time they finish, weather has undone what they've already done and the big trucks have un undone it and they have to keep going over and over and over again. And in the Jewish system, the sacrifices that they made for the sins of today and by the way, they had several daily sacrifices every morning and afternoon, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. The morning and evening sacrifice, they had to make uh, an offering. And then on the Sabbath, on Saturday, what we would call Saturday, they had their regular weekly sacrifice. And then certain times during the year, they had their holidays, holy days, in which they had like the Feast of Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of uh, Trumpets, and they had certain sacrifices made on these days. And then if somebody had committed a sin and they were felt guilty about it, they would bring a sin offering to the priest and say, I need to make a sacrifice to atone for my sin. And if somebody was very thankful and grateful for some windfall or something positive that had happened in his or her life, they would bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a thanksgiving offering. And it was a relentless perennial kind of activity. Those high priests' work, their work was never done. You've heard old preachers, haven't you, say that there was not a chair among the furniture of the tabernacle or later the temple. And the reason there wasn't a chair, now you had a table, an altar, a brazen altar, you had a laver where they could bathe and wash the pieces of meat that they were going to make for the sacrifice. You had, uh, you had a candelabra, a symbol of the light, of truth, you had um, all of these different items of furniture. And then on the, in the innermost sanctum, the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant that, that held the Aaron's rod that budded, the golden pot of manna, and the two tables of the law. And then the lid for that Ark was called the mercy seat. And the cherubim, the winged lions on either side with their wings stretched out, touching each other and their faces toward one another, eyes looking down at the ark. You had all of this furniture, but there wasn't a chair for the high priest to rest. Do you know why? Because his work was never done. Not one drop of animal blood ever atoned for the first sin. And about the time that he said, okay, we've taken care of Johnny's sins from yesterday, then Susan would show up the next morning and have to take care of her sins. <laughs> But then she'd have to come back the next day. And then Johnny shows up again. And you see, those sacrifices did not atone for sin. So what's the main point of the book of Hebrews? It's simply this, my friends, we need a priest. You say, well, we've had a priest for 1,500 years, but my response to that claim is that your priests aren't doing any good. <laughs> that is... They may be temporarily giving you some satisfaction, but the offerings that they make cannot ultimately do good. You see, the Jewish people who would object to the Christians with their newfound faith by saying, you don't have a priest, we actually do have a priest, and that's what our text says. Now, the things which we've spoken, this is the main point. We have such a high priest. We do, in fact, have a priest, and he's the penultimate high priest. Such a high priest. 
And by the way, he's already hinted at the priesthood of Christ back in chapter 2, verse 17, when he said, In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He explains Bethlehem, the incarnation of Christ in which he took our nature, in which he assumed our flesh. God assumed human nature. And you see that is what is happening at Bethlehem. He says that the whole purpose of Bethlehem is so that we might have a high priest. It behooved him to be made like to his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Because an angel can't represent us. The Son of God cannot identify, even though he knows all things, yet he's never experienced what it feels like to feel guilt for sin, the infirmities of human nature. So God became man. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren in the person of Jesus Christ, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. The priesthood of Christ is connected to the human nature of Jesus, is what I'm saying. We do have the ultimate priest. That's the purpose of the incarnation. Look at chapter 7, verse 28. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. And by the way, I would have to answer the question if anybody ever asked me, what is your favorite passage in the Bible? And of course, all scriptures important. It's all divinely inspired and I love it all. But if I was stranded on a deserted island and could have only one chapter from the Bible with me, I think I would choose John chapter 17. The high priestly prayer of Jesus that he offered in the shadow of the cross. You know the chapter, don't you? Father, the hours come, glorify thy son, that thy son also might glorify thee. And he prays for all of his elect, not for the world, but for those that thou hast given me. God gave a people to Christ before time began. So this is a chapter rich with doctrinal significance, solid theology, the doctrines of grace, the everlasting covenant, the finished work of Christ. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. And this is a chapter in which he prays for his church. Father, they're not of the world, but I've chosen them out of the world, but they're still in the world. So, Father, keep them from the evil. He prays for us, not only for our eternal salvation, but for our sanctification. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And he prays for our ultimate glorification. Father, I will that... They whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. That's your future, my friend. I love that chapter, John 17. Do you know what John 17 is? It is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. That is, it shows us by way of preview what he will be doing once he's ascended back to heaven. Now, he's still in the presence of his disciples on the earth when he offers this prayer, John 17. John 18 is his crucifixion and death. John 20 is his resurrection. And after his resurrection, we know he went back to heaven. You say, what is he doing right now in heaven? He's doing the same thing in heaven that he did in John 17. He's praying for his people. He's praying for you. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment, my friends. As our great high priest in heaven, the main point is that we do have a priest, the penultimate high priest. That's why he was incarnate. 
And what is he doing right now? He's functioning in his priestly role, as the text says, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You see, our priest is a better priest than the children of Israel ever had. And that's really what we've just discussed in chapter 7, when he focuses on the superiority of the priesthood of Christ, just as Melchizedek was superior to Levi. You remember that Jacob had 12 sons? Simeon and Reuben and Judah and Levi and Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali and Dan and uh, Joseph and Benjamin, that's 10. I left out a couple there. Asher is one, and there's one more in there that, I, that slips my mind at the moment, but he won't mind that I've left him out, whoever it is. But he had 12 sons. One of those sons was Levi. From the Levites, Levi's family, his descendants became the priests. That's where the priesthood came. Aaron and Moses were Levites. Remember when God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? They were descendants of Levi. They were from that tribe of Abraham's children. And Aaron was made the priest. Moses is the prophet. Aaron is the priest. And the sons of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood is the family, the tribe, that functioned in this role in the Old Testament. Chapter 7 tells us that Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. What tribe was Jesus from, do you remember? Jesus, our Lord, sprang out of Judah. He came from the tribe of Judah, which was the kingly line. The kings came from Judah. The kings were the political office, remember? Like the president. Politics. The king was the political office. The priest was the religious office, and they didn't mix church and state. The priest could not be a king. The king could not be a priest. You say, then how can he be a priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi? Because his priesthood predates Levi and Aaron. He comes from the order of Melchizedek, a strange, mysterious figure. That's what we learned in chapter 7. And our priest, therefore, is a superior priest. He's superior in his priesthood's antiquity. He's greater than Levi in the scope of his priesthood because Melchizedek's priesthood was not limited to a single nation. It was international in its scope, so is our Lord's priesthood in its origin. For the priests in the Old Testament didn't have to be specially ordained. They were just, if they were born to the right family, they could be a priest, you know, natural lineage. Biology was the only criteria for serving in the priesthood, but Jesus was ordained a priest. As chapter 7 tells us, he was made a priest with an oath. That language suggests that it's a covenant assignment for the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I'll tell you, our priest is better than the, everyone else's priest in terms of the longevity or the permanence of his priesthood. Chapter 7 verse 16 says it like this. His priesthood is not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. I love that expression, the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever. That's the key word in that verse, forever, after the order of Melchizedek. You see, if you were a Jew and you had a priest, and then you were away from synagogue or the temple for a little while, and a few years later you came back and you said, where is Zadok? Or Shimei, or Simeon, 
who was serving as the priest. He's the priest that I grew up. When I was a boy, he was the priest of this temple. Where is Simeon now? And they would say, oh, Simeon's been dead for many years. You say, well, then who's this young chap that's taken his place? You know, I, I'm not real fond of him. I, I like the old preacher. I like the old priest better than this new priest. I wish we could go back to the old days. Well, sorry, but your priest is, has died. That's the problem, is that the priest who served today wouldn't serve for very long because he died. Look at verse 26, uh, verse 23, I should have said. They truly were many priests because they were not suffered. I'm in chapter 7, verse 23. They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. <laughs> they died. That's the problem they had. They were a priest for a while, and then they, they lost their battle against sin. They died. Verse 25. But this man, it says, is able to save them to the uttermost, that cometh to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I'm so glad to remind you today that Jesus Christ lives forevermore. Our priest was dead, but he's alive forevermore, and he has the keys of hell and death. Jesus will never die again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, my beloved, to ascend to the right hand of the Father, in heaven and to assume his rightful role as both the king and the priest, just like Melchizedek. He's the king of righteousness. He's the priest, our great high priest. Jesus Christ fills both offices permanently. And then notice he's superior to the Levitical priests. Our priest is better than your priest, not only because he has an older order of priesthood, the antiquity of his priestly class, not only because of the scope of his ministry is unlimited so far as nationality is concerned, not only because it's permanent and he can never die, but our priest is better than your priest because of his personal character, as verse 26 says, for such a high priest became us. Notice this character description. Now, could this be said of Simeon or Zadok or Shimei or any of these earthly priests, that he is holy? I'll tell you, if I was a Jew from the tribe of Levi and I was going to be a priest, this could not be said of me. Holy. I'm not holy. I'm a sinner. But this priest is holy. He's harmless. Now, if somebody's going to represent you to God, you want somebody that doesn't have a hidden agenda He's not going to turn on you. He's harmless. He's genuine. He's not going to use what he knows about you to harm you. He's harmless. He's undefiled. That means ethically speaking, morally speaking, he's uncorrupted. Then he's separate from sinners. He doesn't identify with the sin that is resident in our nature because even though he is fully human, Yet, my friends, he's impeccable, and he's made higher than the heavens. This priest that we have, his character description, is one of purity and sinlessness. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmities, says verse 28. That he doesn't have any infirmity, he's consecrated. That is, dedicated to the service of God forevermore. That's why verse 27 says he doesn't need 
like those priests did to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins. You see, when those priests did worship, and they came into the holiest place and made a sacrifice, before they could offer for the people, they had to offer a sacrifice for whom? Themselves. Because they too were sinners. But when Jesus made his sacrifice, he didn't first have to make a sacrifice for his own sins and then for our sins. But for this he did once. He made one sacrifice for our sins. He didn't have any sins of his own. Our sins were charged against him and he made one sacrifice forever. For this he did once. And by the way, that word once in the book of Hebrews literally means once for all time. Once for all. This he did once. Jesus made one offering, and that one offering was good for all time. When he offered up himself. And then notice he's not only superior in terms of his permanence and his personal character, the antiquity of his priesthood, the scope of his ministry, but he's superior in terms of the sacrifice that he made. He made one sacrifice forever. That's what verse 3 of chapter 8 means when it says every high priest must offer gifts and that's what a priest does that's true in a natural sense every high priest is ordained for this purpose to offer gifts and sacrifice wherefore it is of necessity that this man also have somewhat to offer you say what did Jesus have to offer a $100 bill when Jesus came to offer sacrifice for your sins or mine did he draw it drag out his wallet and put some money on the table no my beloved Say, so, well, then did he offer his time? More than that. Do you know what he offered? Not money, not reputation. He offered his life. He offered himself. Here's a priest that made the ultimate sacrifice. He's the priest that made the offering, and he's the offering that was made. He is both the priest and the sacrifice at the same time. This man had an offering that satisfied for all time, and atoned for sin. Jesus Christ laid his own life down. I want to tell you, dear friends, that Jesus did not just give a contribution for your salvation. He gave a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was himself. You want to talk about how much we should appreciate the gift of eternal salvation? If you understand that Jesus gave everything he had for you, if you understand that he gave his own life blood for a wretched sinner like you or like me. Oh, I, I dare say that is the wonder of Calvary. Somebody says, well, okay, so you have a priest, but where is he? I can't see him. We can see our priest, and our message is your priest isn't doing you any good. <laughs> He's not, I don't mean to insult you, but your priest is just a man, just a man like you are. He's a sinner like you are. Your priest's sacrifice is not capable of removing sin. It just makes you feel better for the moment because you've gone through the ceremony, but your priest has no lasting value. We have a better priest. Somebody says, then where is he? Our text says, we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So where is our priest? He's in heaven. You say, well, that means you can't live by sight. You can't see him. No, we must live by faith, you see. 
But you see, heaven is the real sanctuary. That's what verse 2 says. A minister, he's a minister of the sanctuary that is the holy of holies. That word sanctuary is plural in the original, and it means not just the holy place, the holy order, but the holy of holies. Jesus has gone into heaven itself to the true tabernacle. Do you know what this is saying? It's saying that all of the symbols of Moses' tent and Solomon's temple, where they did sacrifice and had worship in the Old Testament. He's saying that all of those priests and all of the vestments and the ornamentation and all of the rituals and ceremonies were symbolic of something real that's happening in heaven. You say, why did they have a priest and an altar and a sacrifice? Because that, my beloved, is a shadow of the genuine thing that's happening in heaven right now. So our high priest is not just participating in the game or in the pattern. Our high priest is the real McCoy, the genuine article, the authentic priest. He's in the real Holy of Holies. The real Holy of Holies is not in Jerusalem somewhere. The real Holy of Holies, my friends, is in the presence of Almighty God at the right hand of the majesty on high. And notice that word majesty. You know, we call a king or queen your majesty. Something that is majestic. Majesty speaks of something that is weighty. The weight of a personage. The heaviness, the significance of this person's position. The majesty on high my friend, speaks of the royal presence of God. Our priest has gone to the right hand of the majesty on high. Our priest is fulfilling his priestly role in the very presence of God. Now I know that God symbolically was present in the Holy of Holies. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that a cloud came down and filled the room, the Shekinah glory of God, when the priest went in there on the Day of Atonement God would come down and meet the priest and the cloud would be present. That was a type, a shadow, a picture. What I'm saying this morning is that our priest is a greater high priest than everyone who's ever served in that office because his priesthood is real and permanent while the Levitical priesthood was typical and temporary and he functions as a priest in a way that is real and not just a shadow of the real thing. You see, though it appears the Christian faith is impoverished, it's actually the reality to which the Old Testament law was only a shadow. Christ has fulfilled the law and consequently a new covenant has been inaugurated. That's what he's going to go into in the last half of this chapter. And it's a better covenant, as verse 6 says, with better promises. And it's established upon... Uh, better principles and it's better in as much as the genuine article is better than the prototype it's better in as much as having the person with you is better than having a picture or portrait of that person when i go off on a preaching trip sometimes by myself i'll show somebody a picture of my wife i'll say this is my wife but you know that picture that portrait can't hug me <laughs> that picture i can't enjoy commu communication the real McCoy, the real thing, is better than the portrait. And what we have, even though it doesn't look impressive, people may come into our church and say, where are your portraits 
Where are your statues? Where are your priests? Where are your holy vestments and robes and garments? And where's the smoke? And where is the special music and the ceremony? Why don't you have a real church? My answer is, this is the real church. Because we have the real priest. He's in heaven. In the real holy of holies. And by faith, we are serving him through his word. So Hebrews is going to tell us as we proceed again and again that the just shall live by faith. That's the main point of the book of Hebrews. Yeah. 